had a dream about this place. episode 42 of ghost stories for the end of the world tonight we need to be thinking about patterns my friends um last episode we explored the idea that it was no accident that the unraveling of the las vegas skim operations and the fbi's war on the mob happened during and after the church hearings and the house select committee on assassinations had started to probe these murky ties between the syndicate and the CIA. Uh, Don't forget, with the assassination of RFK in 1968, the war on organized crime had more or less ground to a halt in the early 70s. Now, that's not to say there wasn't the occasional, you know, big bust here and there, but for the better part of a decade, there was nothing like the explosion of prosecutions and indictments that we saw from the late 70s onwards. And I suggested that this was at least in part because the CIA was finally beginning to withdraw its protection from some of the underworld figures they'd been partners with, you know, ever since the CIA was still the OSS in World War II. Now it's a gut feeling, but it's one that I think is more or less on the money. Um, because the CIA, of course, was under new management by 1976. And the man who'd been brought in as the new director, ostensibly, you know, to steady the ship and restore the agency's good name. Well, that was George Bush. And I think a lot of what happened subsequently is a textbook example of this Bush CIA old boy method in practice, you know, the way it dealt with the scrutiny of its ties to organized crime was much the same as the ways that it had dealt with the revelations about chaos or MKUltra or its role in overseas assassinations. So essentially, the the underlying pattern is that once the agency is satisfied that it has severed or buried the most obvious and damaging connections between itself and, you know, the uh, the scandal du jour in this case you know, um, its relationship with the syndicate. Once it's done that, it's more or less content to let the chips fall where they may, you know. Now, by the late 70s, a few underworld figureheads had been smart enough to adapt. They'd bought themselves a stay of execution, you know, through savvy investments and politicking in the overworld. So that world of country clubs and Wall Street horse trading. So they were able to escape, you know, mostly unscathed. Uh, They they essentially paid for the right friends and the right protection. But as always, 
the guys who'd outlived their usefulness to the powers that be, well, they were left to stand or fall against the feds on their own. And given the recent exposure of, you know, these incredibly illegal programs that the CIA and the FBI had been running domestically, both agencies were in very dire need of some good uh, publicity. The appearance of the law must be upheld, especially when it's been broken. I think that Maya Lansky actually offers us a very instructive example. You know, he's someone that we can use to explore how um, the change in political winds uh, in both the, the public and the secret state affect figures like him, you know. And especially here, they give us some sense of how all these various factional battles played out publicly. So in the early 70s, he'd found his influence fading inside Results International and, you know, in the syndicate more broadly. And one of his key associates, Eddie Cellini, had been a casino manager for Resorts. And Eddie and his brother Dino, along with Lansky, they'd helped, you know, finance and arm the anti-Castro Cubans after the revolution. But something changed in the late 60s, early 70s. Eddie was fired as a manager at Paradise Island, you know, one of Resorts International's um, luxurious venues. And then Santo Traficante and Carlos Marcelo, they started to make moves to shut Lansky out of Resorts and develop closer ties with the Nixon set. Now, bear in mind that this is all happening while Nixon is in the White House and Lansky felt like Nixon was his guy. So, you know, he must have been fuming about this. Nixon decided to go after Lansky with a vengeance as well. Um, he was charged with tax evasion and he tried to emigrate to Israel in 1970. Then he was indicted in 1972 for skimming $36 million from the Flamingo Casino. And he was constantly fending off indictments and looking over his shoulder for a couple of years here. And you'd think that, you know, with this renewed determination to stamp out organized crime, Lansky would make quite the headline-grabbing prosecution for skimming, you know, at the very least. But Watergate had happened by this point, and a dozen other factional moves had taken place or were in the process of taking place. And then by 1976, we end up with the presiding judge in the Flamingo case suddenly ruling that Maya is too ill to stand trial. So this seems like kind of a, a strange and unexpected end to years of legal trouble. So how did Lansky manage to slip away at the last second? Now, I think it's important to bear in mind that all through this period, you know, between 70, 76, he was weathering a, a storm of indictments and skullduggery. And in response, he was carefully strengthening his power base and connections, you know, after he was frozen out of resorts and the Nixon admin went after him. And he worked with guys like the deep state financier, Robert Vesco, plus, you know, the top outfit guys like Sidney Korshak and, and Hyman Lana. And Lansky's friendship and business dealings with someone like Lana, in particular, I think, are very important to be aware of um, because of the amount of intrigue surrounding them. So as we've discussed before, Lana was... 100% a CIA asset who ran guns and dope for the agency and had expanded the outfit's gambling operations into the Middle East. He'd um, opened up 
um, a casino in Tehran. And in fact, I don't think it's insignificant that Lana also at this time was smuggling guns into Israel for the CIA. And he and Lansky both were doing a lot of business with Paul Helliwell's, you know, Castle Bank and Trust. Lansky also made sure that he retained enough clout inside the syndicate so that he could have his brother Jake assigned to be one of the couriers the outfit was using to deliver the skim from the Stardust Casino. And in time, Lansky regained some of his, you know, political protection. And as someone who connected so many disparate figures in the overworld and the underworld, he would have been extremely hard to replace by the late 70s. And a number of his associates and uh, protégés, they'd go on to work with that circle of businessmen around George Bush, you know, the faction that made millions out of scandals connected to banking, the savings and loan collapses, the oil industry, and Iran-Contra. Now, we'll be getting into more detail on all this stuff later in the series, but I'm just planting the, the seed there. So Lansky retired and lived out his remaining years in Miami, and he worked as a kind of underworld consultant, you know, low, low, low key. But that's not to say that Lansky's influence and power was anywhere near as extensive as it had been uh, because, you know, there was new management, remember. And in fact, his stepson, uh, Richard Schwartz, was killed in Miami in 1977. Now, the police maintained that it was a revenge hit since Schwartz had earlier killed a connected guy in a fight over a bar tab. But in 2008, a cocaine trafficker called John Roberts, who'd worked for the Medellin cartel, he confessed to his involvement. He said he'd planned the murder with two mafia members, Jerry Teriaka and Bobby Era. But the actual shooter, according to Roberts, was a Cuban-American volunteer fireman and drug dealer called Enrique Predo. Now, Predo was also connected to the syndicate and he moved a lot of products for the new cartels that were emerging um, in South America at this time. And here's where it gets truly, truly weird because Predo went on to join the CIA. And in fact, he was recruited into what we might think of as the, the Bush enterprise. And he became a, a key middleman in the Iran-Contra operation. And in 1991, while he was a CIA officer, the feds actually hit him with a RICO investigation into his drug ties. And they indicted him for the murder of Schwartz, but Langley higher-ups quietly, you know, squashed it. So by the time of the 9-11 attacks, Predo was an SIS-2 level officer, and he was also one of the supervisors in the unit that was hunting for Osama bin Laden. And his colleagues say he wantonly dropped so many people before and during his CIA career that he could technically have been described as a serial killer. So again, patterns, my friends, patterns. Maya Lansky, who is part of the old boy network, is allowed to quietly retire. But when his stepson is shot dead by a spook connected to the, the up-and-coming South American cartels, Lansky can't do anything about it. And these cartels under Bush and then under his, his successor and his friend William Casey they were going to become the CIA's new preferred partners. 
And for all that Lansky had been, you know, a key point of contact between the agency and the syndicate between World War II and up through the 1960s, he had no choice but to kind of begrudgingly recognize the, the political realities of this new uh, situation. The times were a-changing, you know. So given that we'll be concluding our look at Lefty Rosenthal's management of the Las Vegas skim for the Chicago outfit tonight, I need you to remember um, what we talked about last episode, which is that Lefty was the supervisor of an operation that was connected to a truly mind-melting constellation of other clandestine networks. Those casinos in Vegas were the visible part of a subterranean maze of business networks that linked the Chicago Outfit, the Teamsters Union, Resorts International, IOS, Castle Bank and Trust, and, you know, countless other consortiums, front companies, and, you know, investment banks. And from there, it's it's just a couple of shuffle steps to the CIA and its partners in the, you know, the legitimate world of big business. And these entities were all, in turn, involved to one degree or another in, you know, the dark economy. So money laundering, arms and heroin trafficking, um, real estate fraud, intelligence operations, and so on and so forth. These casinos that we've been talking about were crucial in washing quite a lot of that money and cementing the alliances between the various players as a, as a product of that. And I keep harping on this point about the complexity of all these interlinked relationships because it's, it's so, so important to this story. So to illustrate again how tangled these networks become, here are another couple of excerpts from Wall Street, The Supermob, and The CIA by Jonathan Marshall. Quote, Mysterious but important were the mob contacts of the CIA's longtime counterintelligence chief, James Jesus Angleton. Peter Dale Scott notes that Angleton used a go-between the New York lawyer Mario Broad, who, according to a CIA memo, was a counterintelligence staff agent in New York City from 1952 to 1971. One of the sensitive CIA staff agents handled by Broad in New York was Jay Lovestone, the AFL-CIO International Affairs Chief, who transmitted funds to strong-arm guns in Marseille, allied with Corsican drug traffickers who were part of the Lansky-Luciano global drug connection. Like Broad, Angleton himself allegedly had mafia contacts, and on at least one occasion intervened to prevent another part of the CIA from investigating the banking of illegal Lansky skim from Las Vegas. So there's a whole other thread we don't really have time to get into here about Angleton and the mob. It's fairly safe to say that he was not on board with the restructuring that was taking place through the 70s, and in fact, He'd cautioned against selling out the agency's mob partners and is said to have been very upset and angry on learning about the deaths of Johnny Roselli and Sam Giancana. And in line with our um, earlier talk of factional competition inside outfits like the CIA, Angleton was himself being eased aside and marginalized during this period, which might help shed some light on Lansky's tribulations during this same time period. So for one more demonstration of the complexity of the networks around the Vegas casinos, uh, now consider this from the same article, this time discussing the sale of a film company called Warner Brothers Seven Arts. 
Quote, the first informal offer for Warner Seven Arts came in the summer of 1968 from Chicago investor Delbert Coleman. Coleman owned J.P. Seberg, a leading manufacturer of jukeboxes and vending machines, which did business with the Chicago outfit and employed the services of its attorney, Sidney Korshak, to make labor problems disappear. Coleman then joined Korshak in taking over Vegas casino company Parvin Dorman. Bert Kleiner represented three unsuccessful Warner Seven Arts suitors, J.P. Seberg, National General, and Commonwealth United, a longtime business ally of Allen & Kerr. He underwrote the 1966 sale of millions of dollars in notes issued by Mob-Linked Resorts International to finance a luxurious new casino on Paradise Island in the Bahamas. The buyer of these notes was Galveston-based American National Insurance Company, which was second only to the Teamster Pension Fund as a financial backer of mob-owned casinos in Las Vegas. Lefty didn't know the full extent of all this, of course, and to be honest, he didn't need to. It was probably better that he didn't, but it was part of his job to know that drawing too much attention to himself might cause a domino effect that could, you know, potentially lead to all these adjacent operations collapsing and, you know, by extension, potentially embarrass the syndicate and its most powerful friends and protectors. So that he chose to conduct himself the way he did anyway, it's actually kind of impressive. I can't lie. So we, we wrapped up the last episode by introducing Tony Spilotro, who was the outfit hitman who'd been tapped to clip Sim, Sam Giancana before he could potentially expose anything to the church committee about the CIA mob connections. I think that for now we should loop back and we should discuss Spilotro's rise in the Chicago underworld. Spolatro had, he'd harbored ambitions of eventually taking over the outfit ever since he was a kid. Uh, by his early 20s, he was already pulling in upwards of 30 grand a month for the Chicago uh, outfit. He was a master thief. He had a string of like locksmiths, alarm guys, security guards, that kind of thing on his payroll. He was already something of a legend uh, by the time he was initiated into the outfit. And one story has it that he knocked over a jewellery store in Antwerp and smuggled the diamonds back to the States in his wife's beehive hairdo. And he was on the FBI's watch list and any time he visited Europe, he was dodging Interpol surveillance. Spolotro was also childhood friends with Lefty and they'd risen through the Chicago underworld together. And it was a really good arrangement for a long time. You know, Spolotro would lend his guys out to Lefty when he needed to collect a payment and Lefty passed along insider information whenever Spolotro was making a bet. And it was precisely this friendship that had also caused so much trouble for Lefty when he was trying to get his gaming license in Vegas. Um, so there were a couple of different reasons given for why Tony Spolotro traveled out west to Vegas. 
1971. Uh, one is that he was sent there by the outfit, ostensibly to watch Lefty's back and, you know, oversee the skim operation. Another has it that there was way too much heat on him back in Chicago and he set up shop in Vegas as a basically a way to escape the coppers, you know. But by the mid-70s, and despite Vegas's designation as an open city, as we discussed, Spolotro had started to construct his own mini mafia family, and he was specializing in burglary and shakedowns. Um, I read, I've read this in a Las Vegas Sun article, a New York Times article, and a Guardian article, that the murder rate went up by 70% when he got into town, but I honestly, I don't know how true that is, although it certainly paints a certain picture, you know. Um, eventually he established like um, a system of highly profitable extortion rackets. Uh, he put money on the street and he was taxing, you know, bookies, drug dealers, pimps, that kind of thing. Now, to smooth this over with the bosses back in Chicago, he sent them a percentage of everything he made and he also made himself available as a hitman for them. And during the 70s alone, he dropped almost two dozen bodies connected to the Las Vegas operation on the outfit's orders. We'll follow this up a little bit later. The cops and the feds were constantly after him. Uh, in 74, he was indicted along with Alan Dorfman, an outfit capper called Joey the Clown Lombardo, and a fellow called uh, Irvin Weiner. A Weiner, incidentally, had been close to Jack Ruby, who was the guy who'd shot and killed uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. He'd put Ruby in action. Now, they were all accused of participating in a complex fraud scheme where $3 million in Teamsters pension funds was loaned to shell companies that Dorfman had set up. And the government's case fell apart when their star witness was shot dead before he could testify so although Joey the Clown was eventually convicted in, I think, 2007 uh, for this hit, there have been long-standing rumors that either Spolotro or someone in his Vegas crew actually pulled the trigger, you know. So the Chicago uh, Crime Commission had actually forwarded a, a dossier on Spolotro to the Las Vegas Metro Cops and the, the FBI field office. And from the second that he stepped off the plane, his house, his phone, his car, his businesses, they were all booked. And he was tailed almost everywhere that he went. And he still managed to uh, reorganize the Las Vegas underworld and effectively set himself up as something like the boss of the strip. And at the same time, his crew became known as the uh, the hole in the wall gang due to the, uh, the very risky burglaries that they pulled off all over town. Now, Spilotro technically wasn't supposed to be doing any of this stuff. Um, it drew way too much attention. And even his former crew members have commented on how ridiculous, frankly, it was that they were pulling these heists and armed robberies uh, in a city like Vegas, where there was more than enough money to be made from just running basic protection rackets, loan sharking, even assisting with the skim, you know. And the exact nature of the relationship between Spolotro and Lefty is fairly ambiguous. You know, it's not entirely clear that Spolotro was necessarily the most dominant of the two. And although in the movie, you know, uh, Lefty, Ace, 
he's portrayed as wanting to have a quiet life and run his casinos uh, legitimately. In reality, uh, he may have had other ideas in mind uh, because for one thing, Lefty had a considerable amount of pull with the bosses in Chicago, possibly more so than Spolatro did. And he'd never been shy about asking for muscle when he needed it. You know, I think that's what we talked about when he was in Miami. And for another, once he'd established himself in Vegas, his friends from that time have alleged that he wanted to be the next Lansky, you know, a kind of roving underworld financier and elder statesman. Now, Lefty was also paranoid about the negative publicity that Spolatro immediately generated, you know, once he arrived in town and started actually taking over. And he would be, Spolatro would be in and out of trouble with the cops and the feds constantly uh, in the years to come. And pretty much every time he appeared on TV or in the papers, Lefty was always mentioned alongside him. So after the slot scheme was exposed, 1976, the syndicate started looking to restructure. And to begin with, they finally decided to replace Lefty. So Glick, Alan Glick, was summoned to Chicago and Alan Dorfman told him who he was supposed to hire, which was a guy called Carl Thomas. So Thomas was a, he was a casino executive and he was highly respected all over Nevada. Uh, he was politically well-connected and he was um, well-liked by the Gaming Commission and the Control Board. Uh, so this was an arrangement that basically suited everybody. Uh, Glick, you know, he could breathe a sigh of relief. He also, did Glick, obtained another uh, $45 million loan from the Teamsters um, for further refurbishments and modifications for the casinos. And after some careful negotiation between Argent's lawyers and the control board, Glick managed to persuade them that he was the victim of embezzlement by disgruntled ex-employees, not skimming. Now, this was another compromise that suited everybody because skimming would have required the board to prove that Argent's management were aware of the scam which was much harder than proving uh, embezzlement. So it meant Glick could keep his casino license. But what Glick didn't realize is that Carl Thomas wasn't just hired because of his uh, sterling reputation and impeccable credentials. He'd also been brought in because he was the most skilled and experienced casino skimmer in the United States. He'd perfected the art of making money disappear without the IRS or the feds finding out about it. He was also a terrific uh, troubleshooter and problem solver. Almost everybody at the casinos was on the take in some way. You know, the bosses were losing upwards of half a million dollars a month in small scale theft by individual dealers, pit bosses, repairmen, janitors, cocktail waitresses, you name it, they were stealing. The bosses saw that as their money. It was theirs by right to steal. So part of Thomas's job would be to clamp down on that and streamline the skimming operation so the money was only being stolen from the cash boxes and routed directly back to the bosses in the Midwest. And from that point forward, the skim would consist of 
a syndicate gopher like a Jake Lansky walking into the Stardust count room once a month and leaving with a suitcase full of money five minutes later. So as an example of how uh, occasionally out of the loop Spolotro was and how low lefty stock had uh, temporarily fallen at this point, they weren't informed of any of these personnel changes and Lefty knew he was out for the time being, but he had no idea that Thomas was trying to fire guys who Rosenthal had brought in and the pair of them made a big stink about it, which meant that Alan Dorfman had to fly out to Vegas in person to straighten everything out, you know. And no sooner had Thomas redesigned the skim than a judge that Lefty was friendly with uh, throughout the state's case against him and ordered Argent to rehire him. Uh, Lefty then immediately moved back into the Stardust and Thomas was out. There's a pretty um, epic murder montage at the end of the movie, uh, Casino, when the bosses decide to clip anybody who might, you know, feasibly snitch them out to the feds. Now, in truth, these murders happened over a much longer period of time than the two or three months the film implies. And they began almost as soon as the first investigation into the slot scheme was opened in 1976. And Spolotro and his crew were asked to carry most of them out. And what's interesting is that it's also around 1976 that Vegas really started to put the zap on both uh, Spolotro and Lefty and the pair of them went off the deep end uh, into full-on megalomania. But first, uh, a little bit more detail on the murders. What's important to remember is that this is how it always goes when the high-level bosses are threatened in any way. And it, it should give us some indication of how out of control the Vegas scene was becoming as the 1980s rolled around. to Tamara Rand and Buccieri, the syndicate also likely ordered the murder of Jay Vandermark. That was the guy who'd been appointed to run the slot scheme at the Stardust. He ran away to Mexico uh, shortly after the control board raided the Stardust. And it's believed that um, Spolatro was asked to kill him when Chicago got scared that he was going to flip. He's the guy who uh, runs away to Costa Rica in the movie and gets shot next to the swimming pool. Now the same year, 76, it's believed that Spolotro's crew also killed Peter Bufala, who was a dealer at the MGM Grand, again, with some tangential knowledge of how the skim worked, which is true for pretty much all of these people. They followed this up with uh, Jerry Delman, who was a bucky, uh, who they suspected of being a snitch. They hit Rick Manzi, who was a Vegas drug dealer who was refusing to pay a street tax and also made noises about going to the cops. 
In April of 77, uh, they killed Jeff Vandermark, who was the, the junkie son of Jay Vandermark. Uh, he was, I think he was beaten to death actually inside his own apartment. February 77, they kill a Las Vegas labor union leader called Al Bramlett, who'd been a Spolotro crew associate and also had some knowledge of the skim. He was taken out to the desert and, uh, shot execution style. In uh, July of 77, four outfit associates were killed, uh, execution style in their offices. Uh, this was called the Park Ridge Massacre. Uh, it, they owned an alarm company that was used to wash, uh, not just Las Vegas skin money, but a lot of, uh, money that was coming from other businesses that the outfit and their friends had money tied up in. And the bosses, uh, suspected that they'd been embezzling some of this money for themselves. The, the four guys were called Joe LaRose, John Fiacci, Malcolm Russell, and Don Marchbanks. In June of 79, um, a guy called Vic Weiss was found murdered uh, in North Hollywood. He'd been hogtied, shot twice uh, in the back of the head, and then stuffed in the boot of his Rolls Royce. October of 79, an outfit associate, called Jerry Leisner. He was shot to death uh, and dumped in his swimming pool. This one was carried out by Frank Culotta, who was Spolatro's number two. Uh, he'd been getting ready to testify in front of a federal grand jury. Now, there are a few more that we'll get to in a second. But for now, we'll return to Lefty, who'd been advised by Alan Dorfman and Spolatro to keep his head down and, you know, stay out of the papers for a while. The FBI sent agents to Vegas with 83 search warrants in 1978 as the skim operation started to unravel. And it was looking at this point like everything was about to uh, fall apart. Now, one thing that was beginning to worry the syndicate in a big way at this point was Lefty's failing marriage uh, because a pissed off mob wife who knows a lot about her husband's business she can cause a lot of trouble, you know, and there was pressure on Lefty to either salvage the relationship or else pay her to go away and stay quiet. And instead, Lefty and Jerry continued this cycle of, you know, domestic drama, trial separations, reunions, wash, rinse, repeat. Now, it does make one wonder why the bosses continue to keep him around. And my honest answer is I'm not entirely sure, but I do have a very tenuous theory that I'll tell you about a little bit later. So rather than, you know, staying home and working on the marriage, Lefty took to partying all over town with a huge entourage of hangers-on. He'd turn up at rival casinos with a group of showgirls and executives. He'd drop $50,000 at blackjack. He'd get hammered. Then he'd fly everybody into LA on private jets and buy them, you know, expensive gifts. Lefty then decided that he needed to raise his uh, public profile a little bit more and establish himself as more of a legitimate businessman and impresario, try and get rid of the, the stink of the mob. So to this end, he landed himself a gossip column in the Las Vegas Sun and he started hosting his own late night talk show that was filmed um at the Jubilation nightclub. His first guest was Frank Sinatra, and he also interviewed such, you know, luminaries as Alan Glick, Don Rickles, O.J. Simpson, Liberace, Bob Hope, and Robert Conrad. 
Now, here's an excerpt from a typical Frank Rosenthal column, um, which the New York Times used to frequently describe as uh, subliterate. Quote, Women's Lib thought I would take a run over to the Las Vegas Country Club for lunch with Argent Executive Vice President Bob Steller. Looking for the change of pace and possibly a story or two, my attention was immediately focused upon the ladies of Las Vegas. Phyllis Laforte, very style conscious, formerly of New York, bionic eye for high lines and super curves, a very elegant young lady in or out of her tennis suit. Sandy Tuella, the doctor's wife, a mighty fine woman, tennis accentuated and very proper, stylish too. Barbara Greenspun, the epitome of fashion par excellence. The publisher's wife is a genuine knockout, taste of perfection, slack ensemble, lavish dresses, blouses and more, a genuine New York fashion plate. An enormous wardrobe. Barbara Greenspun may very well be one of the finest dressed women from coast to coast, and you can take that to the bank. To the remaining ladies of the club, my apologies. The professional eye, Jerry, advises that you're all out of sight and I'm running out of space. You know, I can't quite imagine Maya Lansky ever writing a gossip column for a local paper. Um, but if you were to take 280 characters from that excerpt at random, do you know what I think you'd have? You'd have a very passable sounding Donald Trump tweet, um, like lefties cadence and syntax. It's so much like Donnie's that it's it's almost like you're looking at his literary doppelganger. And in fact, Nick Pileggi um, actually does say this in Casino, quote, Rosenthal was no longer just bothersome and litigious. He was dangerous. He was all over the place. Like many men who come noisily to public life, like Donald Trump, he began to crave the spotlight, which is very interesting uh, for reasons that will also become clear uh, a little bit later on. Incidentally, the um, owner-editor of the Las Vegas Sun, I think we've discussed this guy before, but I can't quite remember. Um, his name was Hank Greenspun. And there are some very tantalizing threads spinning off from this guy. So Greenspun was himself close to Hyman Lana and other outfit guys. And he used Teamsters loans to finance some of his real estate ventures uh, in Nevada. And he'd tried to persuade a massively influential uh, Washington Post journalist called Drew Pearson to ease up on his uh, negative Jimmy Hoffa coverage. Greenspun had also helped Howard Hughes buy his way into Las Vegas, and he'd once been fined $10,000 for smuggling guns into Israel and buying artillery and airplanes for the uh, Haganah organization. Um, he received pardon, actually, from JFK in 1961 for this. Then at the height of McCarthyism, he used his paper to spread rumors that Joe McCarthy was secretly gay. And this, you know, incidentally, this was right around the same time that Alan Dulles was mobilizing his own anti-McCarthy campaign. And Greenspun was also in the business of compiling blackmail dossiers on politicians that he didn't like. Uh, James McCord, who was one of the Watergate burglars, he claimed that um, he and the other Nixon plumbers had planned to burglarize Greenspun's office. He said Greenspun had evidence um, in his safe of the Nixon campaign receiving money from Howard Hughes and syndicate leaders. And he also allegedly had additional material on the links between the Hughes organization and Larry O'Brien, who was the Democratic uh, Party 
chairman. Now, remember that there's a good chance that Watergate was a sort of a, a, a palace coup against Nixon. So McCord could well have been lying about why they really wanted to break into Greenspan's office and trying to smear O'Brien and the Democrats for good measure. You know, it was just a, a nice little uh, bonus in there. So regardless, the scheme never got off the ground because it said that Howard Hughes, who was supposed to have provided a getaway plane, uh, never came through at his end. And to dodge any further questions about his uh, dossiers, Greenspun managed to get an injunction that permitted him to keep them locked in his safe. So anyway, Pileggi goes on to describe how Rosenthal's friends in the mob now were becoming very, very annoyed by his the, the you know his high public profile and um how many enemies he was making in like you know the Las Vegas police department Joe Agosto, this is from Pelleggi again, the entertainment director at the Tropicana who was supervising the skim there, began to call Nick Civella to complain about Lefty. Agosto was concerned that Rosenthal's mania for publicity would eventually affect him and both of them would be thrown out of the casino business. He telephoned Carl DeLuna, the underboss of the Savella crime family. The FBI was listening. And this is uh, Agosto uh, speaking here. Quote, He's going to pull everybody into the mud. I don't want any shit to spill over to make it impossible to live in this fucking town. He's starting out on the wrong foot now, and somebody should tell this fucking guy where the sign is. The state of Nevada had also continued to uh, pursue their case against Lefty. And in 1979, the Gaming Commission uh, once again refused to issue him a license. They determined that at least $7 million had been stolen just from the slot machines at Argent Casinos. They believed that Lefty had um, overseen it all, but they could never actually prove this, I should point out. Now, the chair of the commission at this point was a guy called Harry Reid. He was a state senator. Uh, And when the verdict came in, Lefty lost his fucking mind. Uh, He'd been convinced that he was finally going to get his, you know. And he went off on a tirade about all the personal favors that he'd done for Reid over the years. And the press in the courtroom could not get enough of this. You know, in fact, the, uh, the... the proceedings spilled out into the corridor and Lefty continued ranting and, and raging in front of the uh, the microphones and the TV cameras. Reed denied ever having met Lefty, but then he did concede that he'd once had dinner with him at the Stardust. And around this time, an FBI wiretap picked up a conversation between two outfit capos in which they discussed paying kickbacks and bribes to Reed and described him as being in their pocket. And in 1981, uh, the senator's wife found a bomb underneath the family station wagon. So he definitely pissed someone off. And then, just to uh, bring it full circle, back to what we were talking about before with the uh, political context of all this. In 1978, we have the House Select Committee on Assassinations, which determined that JFK was likely killed as a result of a conspiracy. And the final report is, you know, it's fairly messy and sometimes it verges on incoherent. But it occasionally does edge up to saying something definitive, you know, and then it quickly backs off again. 
So here's an excerpt from it, quote, Based on the evidence available to it, the committee could not preclude the possibility that individual members of anti-Castro Cuban groups or the National Syndicate of Organized Crime were involved in the assassination. There was insufficient evidence, however, to support a finding that any individual members were involved. The ramifications of a conspiracy involving such individuals would be significant, although of perhaps less import would be the case if a group itself, the National Syndicate, for example, had been involved. Of the syndicate specifically, it says, the committee believes on the basis of the evidence available to it that the National Syndicate of Organized Crime as a group was not involved in the assassination of President Kennedy, but that the available evidence does not preclude the possibility that individual members may have been involved. Crucially, though, it has this to say about the CIA. Quote, based on the committee's entire investigation, it concluded that the Secret Service, FBI, and CIA were not involved in the assassination. The committee concluded that it is probable that the president was assassinated as a result of a conspiracy. Nothing in the committee's investigation points to official involvement in that conspiracy. So what's significant here and why I keep bringing up this wider context is because this illustrates the change in nature of the relationship between um, the outfit and the syndicate itself and, you know, uh, the American security state, the CIA. Because what's significant here is that the CIA was definitively closed off as colluding in the JFK hit. But their partners in the syndicate and even the Cuban exile groups were not. So that is very important to remember there because the best they got the syndicate and the the anti-castro cuban exiles the best they got out of it was that there was no group conspiracy but the um committee never ruled out that you know individuals might have colluded together so obviously we know the cia was involved in jfk's murder that it in fact was the prime mover behind it but you know Let's be real. But they almost certainly uh, exerted influence over the committee to clear themselves of any wrongdoing. So you take this, the way that the the syndicate and the the anti-Castro Cubans have been kind of hung out to dry in this report. Take this and add it to the easing side of the old guard that was going on at this time. So, you know, guys like James Angleton at the CIA, People like Nicholas Deke in the years to come, you know, it's not too far off him, uh, first being ostracized and then clipped. And, you know, the hits on people like Johnny Roselli and Sam Giancana. So Carlos Marcello, he wound up being convicted in 1981 for racketeering and wire fraud. And he'd been an integral piece of the uh, mob CIA nexus back in the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s. But then contrast that with Santo Traficante, who'd, he'd invested in an array of businesses, and real estate ventures that put him in bed with various key figures in the incoming Reagan administration. Chief among them was George Bush and the Houston set around him, which we're going to get into more uh, a little bit later in this series. So Traficante died a free man. And in fact, he's supposed to have even made a deathbed confession to his lawyer that he was actually involved in the JFK assassination, but, you know, nobody's sure if the lawyer, Frank Regano, is actually telling the truth about this. 
So what I'm saying really is that the syndicate at this point was running around trying to kind of stabilize the ship, you know, trying to tie off all the loose ends and whatnot. But really it was a pure battle for survival at this point um, because the CIA had neatly clipped many of the links between them and the syndicate, you know, and things were becoming much more diffuse and harder to trace, you know, for the would-be investigators because so much money and so many of these relationships now were taking place via these Byzantine dizzying uh, networks of offshore banking and uh, corporate investment and stocks and shares and so on and so forth. So back in Vegas, Spolotro was... He was also losing his head by this point. He'd started having an affair with uh, Jerry, which Lefty found out about. And word seems to have got back to Chicago. And this was another potential flashpoint because the feds are circling. They're closing in. People are flipping left and right. And an affair could cause a lot of bitterness that either start a war or cause the outfit to, you know, kill Lefty, Jerry, and Spilotro. So this weird love triangle and the mob angle became a very hot topic in uh, the local news in Las Vegas. And the FBI started to send clippings back to the Chicago field office. And they in turn used their contacts at um, Chicago newspapers to print stories about it all. And all of this was meant to be seen and read by outfit bosses like Joe Iopa. And Lefty finally divorced Jerry and agreed to pay her five grand a month in alimony. And she moved to LA and fell in with a bad crowd. And meanwhile, the cleanup effort continued apace. Uh, June 10th, 1980, uh, a guy called Frankie Blue, Bluestein was killed by, uh, the Las Vegas Police Department. Uh, this is the bit in the film where he's carrying a sub sandwich and the cops think it's a gun. So they open up on him and then plant a gun at the scene. In actuality, it was a pizza and, even like Frank Culotta has said, he probably did actually pull a gun on him, but, you know, whatever. Uh, but crucially, Spilotro's crew took Bluestein's killing as an act of war, and they shot up the houses of the two cops who killed Frankie Blue. The cops then responded by getting hammered and strafing Spilotro and his crew's homes and businesses, and for a brief period, there was an actual mini-mob war between the Spilotro crew and the Metro cops and during all this kent clifford who was the chief of metro intelligence he flew to chicago and dropped by joe iopa's house clifford was fuming because he found out that uh, spilotro had put contracts out on his offices joe was out so clifford and his um number two that he brought with him threatened Joe's wife and then they visited some of the outfit's lawyers and told them point blank that if any metro cops were killed Clifford would send a hit squad after the bosses and their entire families then FBI agents visited the mob bosses in Chicago to let them know what was going on and offer more information about just how out of control uh, Spolotro's crew had gotten now eventually Spolotro and his boys were busted uh, trying to rob a jewellery store on West Sahara Avenue. Um, a guy called Sal Romano had been secretly working for the FBI and tipped them off about this. And the entire group was busted. And for once, the cops actually had a live witness as well as, you know, years worth of, of wiretap evidence. And at the same time, 
the feds were moving against the leaders of the skim operations. Alan Dorfman and Joey the Clown, uh, they were done for trying to bribe a state senator. The Savella family were indicted for skimming another casino called the Tropicana. And Joe Ayupa, Jackie Saron, and Frank Balistrieri were all indicted for the start of skim. And the feds picked up another mobster called Carl De Luna at this point. And it turned out he kept meticulous financial records of the skim and very detailed notes of meetings that he'd had with different outfit and syndicate figureheads. De Luna had had a lot of responsibilities, you see. And this keeping these cue cards was one of the ways he tried to keep track of everything in his head. Uh, the feds, in fact, they could not believe what they were reading when they raided his house. He probably saved them years of chasing paper. So the wiretap evidence and this paper trail wasn't enough. The prosecutors still needed witnesses who could explain what was on the wiretaps, how the money flow worked, and you know testify about various murders. Frank uh, Culotta, again, Spilotro's number two, he found out that Tony had put a contract on him because Frank had been the one who brought Sal Romano into the uh, the crew. So there was a worry that Frank was going to flip as well. Um, so the second he found out about the contract, Frank went to the feds and within a day he was under armed guard and he'd obtained complete immunity in exchange for his testimony. And the orders came down then to tie off as many loose ends as possible. So these murders continued for years afterwards. Um, Alan Glick, for his part, he turned out to be one of the smarter players in this entire story. And we shouldn't really be surprised because, you know, special ops guy, well-connected, well-respected lawyer and real estate developer, deeply embedded with the real uh, good old boys. He basically escaped. Uh, he cut a deal with the feds. He hired a team of crack lawyers and he managed to completely, almost completely uh, extricate himself from the situation. Then in October of 1982, uh, Lefty got into his car and he was almost killed by a bomb that ignited when he turned on the ignition, but you know, managed to escape before the car fully exploded. Although uh, Frank took pains to deny that it, what happened had any connection to the syndicate or Spilotro. Nobody was buying it, you know, especially as the bodies kept falling. So a month later, witnesses saw Jerry standing on Sunset Boulevard, screaming outside a motel. Uh, then she struggled inside and collapsed. And after three days in a coma, she died. Uh, her system was full of tranquilizers and prescription meds and Lefty always maintained that she was deliberately given an overdose to silence her. January of 1983, Alan Dorfman, the head of the Teamsters Pension Fund, um, he was gunned down in the parking lot of uh, the Lincolnwood Hyatt uh, after a lunch meeting. Now, Dorfman had been on his way to prison and the outfit had been really worried that he was going to flip. Um... Dorfman was actually really well liked by most of the, the outfit and syndicate top brass. And apparently it was with regret that they decided to clip him. Uh, January of 86, a gambler and a real estate agent called Bobby Ellis, who knew a lot about the syndicate's offshore 
banking setup. He was found shot to death in his living room, uh, February 86. An associate and a high-rolling gambler called William Rooney, uh, he vanished on a trip to New York City uh, just after he, he withdrew $40,000 from his account at the Stardust uh, June 1986, an associate called Emil Vachi, who had some knowledge of the uh, skim operations that were still in place in Las Vegas at that point. He was kidnapped and found shot to death in a ditch uh, on the east side of Phoenix. Um, Vachi had also been a part of Spolatro's Las Vegas crew, and he'd worked as a pit boss at the Stardust as well. June 1986, uh, this is when the bosses finally got around to dealing with Spilatro. Um, he'd managed to stall and dodge being indicted, but even at this point, he was still eyeing up a complete takeover of the outfit. And this despite the fact that he was looking at, you know, retrials for the Stardust skim and the hole in the wall robberies. So Tony and his brother, Mickey, were beaten and strangled to death inside a, a, a house in Chicago. Um, and their bodies were discovered a week later in a, a cornfield in Indiana. Um, it seems like, you know, the bosses really had just had enough of him at this point. Then in September, an outfit hitman called uh, Big John Fecorata. He was killed because he was the one who was supposed to bury the Spolatro brothers in that cornfield. And he got spooked by an approaching farmer and ran off. And so, you know, the bodies were just left on display. And then in January of 97, 97, um, an associate called Herbert Blitzstein uh, was gunned down in Las Vegas. Uh, Blitzstein had been an associate of Spilatro's and a bodyguard of his in Vegas. And uh, he also had knowledge of some residual casino skim operations that had been going on. So Lefty, he took the car bombing and then the death of Jerry as his cue to, you know, get the hell out of Dodge. And he moved to LA and just decided to keep his head down for a while. Uh, he'd go on to help his son run a bar and grill. And at one point, uh, he thought that his daughter might be in with a shot at joining the Olympic swimming team. Now, he was only formally banned from Las Vegas in 1987. And after that, he just transitioned to online gambling. And he didn't do too badly for himself, uh, by all accounts. And he eventually died in 2008. And then after he died, it emerged that not only Jerry, but Lefty himself had been designated top echelon informants for the FBI since at least the early 1970s. So the entire time that he'd been fighting the Gaming Commission and the Vegas Control Board, potentially, possibly, ordering murders and beatings and bombings and scheming up a way, you know, to become the next Maya Lansky and overseeing a skim worth tens of millions of dollars, He'd been giving information to the feds that whole time. And I think that this kind of thing potentially bolsters the notion that the massive crackdown on the syndicate was actually the result of subterranean politicking and not because of any real moral imperative, you know, on the federal government's part. 
So, yeah, let's talk about this spurious notion uh, that, you know, at least by the end of the 80s, the mob had been almost totally pushed out of gambling, that Vegas had been redeveloped as a family-friendly resort town, uh, and that the uh, the FBI had comprehensively uh, cracked down on um, the syndicate. Uh, see, this idea that Vegas had been redeveloped as a family-friendly resort town, that is, you know, sort of true. But the idea that the mob had been completely pushed out of the city, um, it relies on not looking too deeply into the business ties of this newer generation of tycoons who who swept over Vegas during the, uh, the go-go 80s. Now consider who... Alan Glick sold his his Vegas Holdings to after he flipped. It was Alan Sachs's Trans Sterling Corporation. This is the same Alan Sachs who we discussed last episode, who was another mob frontman. Now, this is a story that we see repeated more or less across the board. You know, rather than give up secret control of the city, the the smarter bosses, you know, the ones who survived the FBI investigations. They actively sought out uh, better or cleaner frontmen and then buried their own connections to different casinos and hotels in ever more perplexing networks of shell companies. And where they couldn't find clean frontmen, they tapped up people who were so ridiculously wealthy that they were effectively untouchable. One of these guys was uh, a lad called Steve Wynn. Wynn is a casino tycoon and a major Republican Party donor. He was originally used as a frontman, allegedly, to buy a Vegas casino back in the early 70s by Anthony Zarilli, who'd been the boss of the Detroit Mafia. And somehow, Wynn would go on to develop a reputation as one of the guys who cleaned up Vegas in the late 80s and 90s. He's also credited with giving the strip a, uh, quote, new millennium makeover. He was connected to the mob via a number of middlemen. Uh, one of them was called Mel Harris. Harris was an associate of Fat Tony Salerno, the uh, Genovese family underboss. And he'd also worked for a time as, as Maya Lansky's assistant. Win appointed Harris to the board of directors at his Golden Nugget Casino, despite Harris having no relevant work experience whatsoever. Wynn uh, was also investigated in the mid-80s for helping a mafia lawyer called Anthony Constel Bueno launder upwards of a million dollars in heroin money through his casinos. Uh, he was investigated. Nothing solid, apparently, was dug up. Um, Constel Bueno, incidentally, had been working for the Sicilian Mafia to pay off a separate gambling debt, and he was eventually convicted of helping to smuggle millions of dollars worth of heroin into uh, the States. And this is in context of Atlantic City, where Wynn had opened up a few um, new venues. This is at a time where Atlantic City was becoming a preferred money laundering destination for the American and Italian mafias. So Wynn has um, donated millions to the Republican Party, as we said, and he was named finance chairman of the Republican National Committee by Donald Trump. 
And this is especially funny because Wynne and Trump spent most of the 90s suing each other over uh, their control of casinos in Atlantic City. Eventually, he was sued for tens of millions of dollars by um, former employees for sexual assault and, and misconduct. Uh, some of these claims were dismissed and others were settled out of court. And since we're on the subject, there is another fella who, it seems pretty obvious to me, served the same function as Alan Glick, only on a much, much bigger scale. And this fella um, is wealthy enough to have remained beyond the reach of the feds or the cops, at least up to now. And that's Donald J. Trump, baby. Um, Trump has been deep state since forever. There are a few people who still pretend in 2022 that he was some genuine outsider to the game when he won that election in 2016. All it is is that he, you know, he just knew how to market himself that way. So if we look at his um, background, his mentor and his consigliere effectively for a time was Roy Cohn, who'd been an advisor to Nixon and who'd run sexual blackmail ops with uh, Maya Lansky way back in the day. He was also a, you know, a deep fixer for people in DC. Uh, Cohn was mobbed in with top bosses like Tony Salerno and Carmine Galante. And when Don built Trump Tower. He bought his materials from SNA Concrete, which was co-owned by Salerno and Gambino boss Paul Castellano. And Trump has like openly bragged about working with the mafia. And he's even alluded to um, working with the Russian mob as well, not to get to Russiagate or anything. When he built the plaza in Atlantic City, he leased part of the land for the development from none other than Robert Mayhew. And he remained friendly with him for quite a while afterwards. Mayhew, of course, uh, that name should uh, <laughs> be making your spook antenna perk. Um, Mayhew had been Howard Hughes's bagman and fixer. And he was a key liaison between the mob and the CIA around Cuba. And it's likely that he also helped Intertel kidnap Hughes back in the 70s and spirit him away to a resorts international hotel in the Bahamas where Hughes was basically kept doped up on codeine and, and locked in a VIP suite while the CIA and the mob divided his empire up between themselves. And speaking of resorts international, and I'm always surprised uh, how few people discuss this, but Trump owned Resorts International for a time in the 80s, um, which again puts him in proximity to mobsters and spooked out shareholders and, you know, politicians. In fact, he bought it after its previous owner, uh, James Crosby, died on the operating table. Hmm. And while he ran it, Intertel was at his disposal and he made a fortune from Resorts Holdings, you know, in the Bahamas and Vegas. Now, incidentally, he sold results to Merv Griffin, who was another mobbed up tycoon, and Griffin eventually sold it in 1998 to Sun International. Sun International was owned by Saul Kersner. And would it shock you, dear listener, to learn that 
Kirzner is a pro-apartheid accountant with alleged underworld ties from South Africa, whose name appeared in Jeffrey Epstein's uh, Little Black Book, just like Donald Trump's did. Um, Trump's connections to organized crime and, and deep intrigue, I suppose we could call it, they are so all-pervasive that even Steve Bannon wrote an opposition dossier about them for a group of um, never-Trump Republicans, you know, guys like Ted Cruz. Uh, this is back in 2016. And then when Bannon jumped ship to Trump, he buried that report. But I'd be very curious to see what he dug up. Now, here's another weird connection. We discussed a guy called Dennis Gomez uh Last episode, uh, Gomez was the guy who led the raid on the Stardust that exposed the Skinham operation in 1976. And he made a name and built a rep for himself as a ferocious anti-mob prosecutor and anti-mob casino executive. But by the end of the 80s, he's president at the Trump Taj Mahal and, sorry, but there's no way that he didn't know about Don's, you know, plentiful mafia connections. So this raises the fascinating possibility, something that we've talked about already, um, that the exposure of the skim job, the unraveling of the syndicate, and the FBI finally moving against the mob in earnest in the late 70s and 80s, as well as being a sign that the CIA had withdrawn its protection it's also possible that there was some kind of, you know, murky intra-elite beef going on. And clearly the faction that Trump had aligned with, that's the one that emerged victorious in the 1980s. Um, oh, and that Japanese real estate developer, the one that we talked about last episode, uh, Akio Kashigawi, the way he died is pretty interesting as well. He was stabbed 150 times. And apparently, uh, so the rumor suggests, he was killed by Yakuza hitmen. And he died owing Trump's Plaza Hotel in Atlantic City $4 million, which he'd refused to pay. So, you know, what we actually have here, instead of the federal government purging the syndicate from Vegas. What we have instead is a glorified PR job, you know, a huge fake out designed to convince us that the mob influence had been stamped out when in fact they just became more sophisticated at hiding their presence. And uh, what did we say at the, the start of last episode? The names on the deeds of ownership might change, but it's still the same, you know, company running everything. And for every boss and crew the FBI took down in the early 80s during this supposed war on the mafia, there were plenty of top-tier guys who managed to escape the hammer and just moved even deeper into the uh, legitimate world of, of business. And that's where we're going next episode, friends. We're going to look at um, Castle Bank and Trust and World Finance Corporation. And if we have time, we're also going to check in with Poppy Bush as well. As ever, leave a rating and review on iTunes if you haven't already. Um, urge on friends and loved ones alike. Subscribe over on Patreon to unlock Paywalled Ghost Stories episodes and our sister show about the uh, Sicilian Mafia books of war. And don't get captured. 
But for now, that's that. 